Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You know Michael Phelps, the most successful and decorated Olympic swimmer of all time, won a record 28 medals, 23 of which were gold. Well, today, meet the coach behind Phelps' legendary success. Bob Bowman is an Olympic swimming coach, the head coach of the Arizona State Swim Team, and the author of The Golden Rules, 10 Steps to World-Class Excellence in Your Life and Work. Today on the show, Bob shares what he calls the method, a system of principles he's developed over the years to coach his athletes to elite-level success that can also be applied to setting and achieving goals in every area of life. We first talk about how Bob ended up working with Phelps before turning to some of his golden rules. We discuss developing a dream-big vision and an all-in attitude, the importance of having a daily routine and what his own routine and the routine of his swimmers is like, the need to cultivate a passion outside your main pursuit, and much more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash golden rules. All right, Bob Bowman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. So you were the coach behind Michael Phelps's record-breaking Olympic success. You also coached a lot of other Olympians. You coached the swim team for the Americans. And you credit part of your coaching success to a system of principles you've developed over the years that you call the method. And we're going to talk about some of these principles today. But before we do, let's talk about your background a bit, because I thought this was interesting. You share this in the book. You didn't start off your career ambitions when you're a young man thinking about, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? You weren't thinking about being a coach. You were thinking about, you were studying to be an orchestral conductor, like the guy who's with the long hair, you know, <laughs> going crazy in the tuxedo. How did you go from conductor to swim coach? Well, that's a great question. Um, I went to Florida State University, and throughout high school, I was very active in music, and I was swimming. And I studied a number of instruments and had some very good teachers. And I ended up going to the Florida State University School of Music, which is a very highly ranked school. And I was swimming on the varsity swimming team. And my intention was to be a conductor. That's what I had always wanted to be. And I thought that I was suited for that and something I might be able to do. And so I started my program in music and I was on the swimming team. And after a couple years, I had to decide which one of those was going to go because my life was becoming really crowded because the swim team practiced four hours a day. As a music major, I was required to practice the piano four hours a day. I had to go to class a couple hours a day and go to 20 recitals and concerts a semester for the music part. So there was really not even time to like, you know, eat. So I was coming to a point where it's like, something's got to give here. And there were a couple of other things that sort of happened along the way that sort of pushed me into the swimming direction. I had started doing a little bit of coaching on the side and really loved it. But at the end of the day, when I just kind of made the decision to go into coaching and change my major to developmental psychology, I just liked the people and the routines of swimming better than I did the music. And it's not that I don't love music, but I just felt like the things that we did in swimming and the atmosphere that we had with the group that was training was just something that resonated with me more. So I ended up going that direction. I think that's a good life lesson for any young people who are listening to this show when they're trying to figure out what should I do? I think it's good to have options when you're beginning. And then as you, you'll reach a point like you did where you realize I can't do everything. What's the one thing that gives me the most satisfaction? And then you go, you lean into that. So you started coaching. How did you end up working with Michael Phelps? Like when did that happen? (laughs) Well, after I graduated from college, I started working in swim clubs around the country and sort of moving around and trying to learn things and move up. And in 1996, I was hired at the North Baltimore Aquatic Club. It's a very famous swimming club in the country, had a long history of producing Olympic gold medalists, and I was very fortunate to get a job there. And after I had been there about a year, there was really a routine kind of reshuffling of the training groups. And this hotshot 11-year-old, Michael Phelps, ended up in my group. It was really rather random. And, you know, I just wanted to make sure, because at that point, I was an assistant coach and Michael was just a kid. And while everyone knew he had ability, 
it was almost certain that I wouldn't be coaching him when he was swimming for an Olympic medal. So my goal with Michael was to give him all the tools that he would need to be one of the very best. And so we just got to work. And as it would turn out, I ended up staying with him and becoming the head coach and taking him to the Olympics. But, you know, that was much further down the line. In the beginning, it was just kind of a random occurrence. But was there a point when you saw that this kid, he has the potential to be an Olympic champion? Did that happen? Oh, day one. <laughs> Michael was already, an, a, a, he was a national record holder when he came to me, right? So he's the fastest 10-year-old ever. It's not like it was hard to see that part. When I knew that he was something really special was the very first practice that he ever did with me. And the way that it had worked is that Michael, even though he was 11, was in a group that I was coaching that was mainly 13, 14, 15-year-olds. Because the only way we could challenge him was to swim with older kids. And when he was with the younger kids, he kind of misbehaved a lot. So it was good to keep him moving as much as we could. So what happened was I, I thought, well, okay, here's the first practice. I'm going to give them something really tough so they'll know we're going to work hard and, you know, all that kind of bullshit, really. But <laughs> I was trying to make it, you know, make my statement. And we did this very long practice and it ended up with, I won't bore you with specifics, but it was four 100s on a minute. Anybody who is in swimming knows that basically college-age swimmers might be able to do that. I mean, on 105, and he swam them on a minute, which no 11-year-old could ever do. And I remember trying to make myself seem not impressed so he wouldn't think that I was super excited about it. And I went home that night, and I couldn't sleep. I was so excited. I was like, man, this kid is like the real deal. And I better step up my game because he he's going to need a lot better coaching than I'm giving him right now. Well, so let's talk about some of these these rules you've developed. The book's called The Golden Rules, the things you've developed throughout your career coaching. And the first rule of this method is a champion sets a dream big vision. So when you're working with an athlete, like take a Michael Phelps, or it could be another athlete, they're young. How do you help them develop their vision? Like, what do you, do, is there like a process you go through to help them figure that out? There is. And, and, and this one's easy. You know, your dream goal, right? Your big vision. That's when you sit down and say, when you sit down and think about the most fantastic thing you could do in swimming, what would it be? And, you know, nine out of 10 will say swim in the Olympics, right? So it's, it's a big goal and it's very far away and it's very vague, right? We're not talking about how you're going to do that or anything else. We're just saying, I want to swim in the Olympics one day. And, you know, Michael's was, um, well, it, it kind of changed. But when he started, I have a goal sheet from Michael when he was 11 where at the top of the page they had to write their dream goal. And his was, my dream goal is to swim in the Olympics. And then there were other things under it. But I turned the page over, and on the back he had actually written, my dream goal is to win gold, and he like crossed that out because I think he thought at 11 years old it was too big a thing to say on his goal sheet. But what your dream goal is, is the thing that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning when times get tough. It's all about motivation. It's not really, you know, that specific, but it's the emotional connection to this process that keeps you going. You know, nobody wants to get out of bed and go to a cold pool at five in the morning to finish their 200 free in 54 seconds. But that's probably what it would take to win a gold medal. You know what I mean? It's like there, there are some things that you can look at that make the goals possible, but the dream goal is what ignites the process. And part of the, I think a good coach, the first thing you are is an igniter. My friend Dan Coyle would tell you that. And how do you know if your vision is achievable, right? You can say, well, I want to swim in the Olympics or win gold. Yeah. And that, for Michael Phelps, who was you know, doing crazy stuff when he was 11 years old, that's achievable. That's in the realm of possibility. So how do you know, like, how do you base your vision? Like you talk about, you want to suspend belief, but all at the same time, base things it has in to facts. be, you know, somewhat reasonable, right? I think you have good advisors, right? That's what my job is. One of my most important jobs is to help athletes set goals which are exciting and challenging, but also doable, right? Because if your only goal is to set the go to the Olympics, right? And that's your big goal. And you don't have, if you're like me, I could train all day long for the Olympics and there is no way in a million years this body is going to swim in the Olympics. It's just not happening, right? right? And there are a lot of people like that. Very few people are on that level. 
So it's my job to say, well, it's pretty cool to say out there that you want to swim in the Olympics. So what are the steps along the way that are going to get us there? And which ones would we feel good about? Maybe your goal ends up being swimming the NC2A championships along the way to your Olympic dream. Maybe it's to win a high school championship. So there are a lot of stops along the way that are going to have to happen anyway. And you can kind of maybe get them to walk back from that a little bit to one of those goals. As a coach, did you have visions, big dream visions for yourself? I had some. And, you know, I, I wanted to be, I just have this thing about trying to get the most out of myself. And I want my athletes to get the most out of themselves, whatever that is. And in swimming, if you have, you know, if you're in it long enough and you get to work with the right people, getting the most out of yourself is breaking a world record or winning a gold medal. So for me, that was sort of a, a standard that I wanted to, hopefully be able to help athletes achieve. So that I had some goals. Yeah, those are my goals. Coach swimmers to a world record. Yeah, and then we'll talk about this later on. One of the rules is trying to figure out what you do after, right? Exactly. And so your vision can change once you yeah. achieve the vision. Or maybe you realize, okay, my initial vision didn't happen, so I got to be able to adjust and come up with something new. Yeah, uh, we'll talk sure. about that here in a bit. But the next rule is adopt an all-in attitude, not a get-out one. So yeah. what do you mean by that? I mean... Number one, all in means you're completely engaged in what you're doing and you're willing to make that commitment. And get out means that you're not looking for things that you exclude. I, I tell my athletes, I always give them this story because it's a good illustration of how high performance works. Let's say that you're going to climb a huge mountain and you're at the bottom of the mountain and you have this pack full of tools, right? And you're going to have to carry them up to the top. It's very easy in the early stages when things get hard to say, I really don't need this pickaxe and just kind of throw it. And if I get rid of it, it'll be a lot lighter now and I can just, it'll be good, right? So you kind of discard some of these tools to make your short-term journey easier. But then right when you're about to summit the mountain, I need this pickaxe. Oh, yeah, I got rid of that down at the bottom. Don't have it. So you have to have the discipline and engagement to carry all of your tools with you and not eliminate things because it makes your short-term life easier. You want things that are going to make your short-term life harder and your long-term life better and easier. It might not be easier, but better, right? So I think that's what I'm talking about. And I think all in just means you're willing to stick with it when it gets hard because it will be hard. It will be frustrating. There, so much of Michael's journey, you know, people just see the eight gold medals or this, all of the Olympics that he swam in. And those are wonderful moments, but they don't see all the days and weeks where we were, you know, just working beyond hard and frustrated and doubtful. Will we get there? Is this even working? Are we sure this is going to do it? Uh, what happens if, you know, you have all these kind of doubts, everybody has them, but if you're committed to what you're doing and you're committed to taking the next step, it keeps you on the path that eventually allows you to get there because the people that get there are the ones who can go through those kind of things. And you talk about that, this all in attitude, it's not just an attitude. You have to display the attitude with action, right? Yeah, for sure. It, it can't, cause a lot of people, they love the motivation stuff. They watch the videos and they feel like, oh yeah, this is great. And then they don't do anything. And that's, that's yeah, not exactly. really all in. And I, I no. love the story. Yeah, you give the example of uh, Yannick. Yeah. He was from, was he from France? Where is he yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this French swimmer, he like just Twitter DM'd you and said, I want to swim with you. Mm -hmm. And you're like, ah, whatever. You just kind of blew it off. And then he emailed yeah. you. And then you're like, okay, well, I'll be in Colorado Springs at such and such date. If you want to meet, let's meet. And the guy flew from France on short notice to Colorado Springs. Exactly. Use that example. That's a guy who's, who shows all in attitude. Yeah, he's through serious actions. about it. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm talking about. We're just all about, you know, your actions speak louder than words. Like, you know, let your swimming do the talking. And uh, if you want to do something, speak less and act more. We talk about that all the time. You had this idea too, in that the chapter about an all in attitude about avoiding people with negative enthusiasm. Yeah. What's negative enthusiasm? Somebody who really likes to complain all the time. People that suck the life out of you. You know, we don't allow that. One of the things that I have come to learn, and I'm sure you have, and anybody who's lived a little bit knows, 
you know, it, you get back to that. You're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with, right? And if those people that you're spending the time with are all in in their pursuits and they are, you know, healthy and motivated and encouraging, you're going to have all that positive energy going for you. If they're energy vampires and suck the energy out of you and complainers, you're going to become that. So you have to be very careful who you choose to spend your time with. Were there instances in your career as a coach where you had to boot people because they had oh, that yeah. negative enthusiasm? Yeah, many times. I don't want to name any specifics, but many times. Yeah. It's like John Gordon, right? You have to have the right people on the bus. And to do that, sometimes some people have to get off the bus. <laughs> Not only do you have to get the right people on, but you got to get the wrong people off. So I'm a big believer in that. Right. It could be hard. No one likes to fire people or get rid no, of people. Not at all. But you sometimes you have to do that for the good of the group. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So adopt an all-in attitude, not a get-out one. The next rule is short-term goals lead to long-term success. And so this is all about breaking down that big vision into actionable steps. Yeah. And this is really interesting because you have a process. This is very meticulous. It's not just sort of ethereal. Like you actually you break it down through how you develop this game plan for each one of your athletes. Exactly. So let's say an athlete's goal is to medal at the Olympics, right? right. How do you develop a game plan for that? Well, what we're going to do is start at the end. You know, the Olympics are here. This is the result that we want. Where are we now? You know, and it's usually four years ahead. We kind of do this, right? So you have four years. And then we're going to start working backwards to where we are. And really, when you're talking about years, you can't be super specific four years down the road, right? You can be very specific about what you're going to do this afternoon. So as you go from your end goal or your, you know, whatever that big goal is, back towards where you are now, things become more and more specific. And when you kind of zoom out looking towards that goal, they're more vague. So, you know, the year before, the two years before, they don't get crystallized until we're kind of closer to it. But what you do is you set up benchmarks. You set, well, if you want to medal in that, we know that the statistics say the people who medal in the Olympics are in the top six in the world, or top 10 at the slowest the year before. So at the world championships before, number one, you have to qualify and be in the top 10 in the world. That would be almost a guarantee that it's going to happen. And then you'd work back the year before that and say, well, what, what are the steps I have to take? Right now, I'm four seconds away or three seconds away from making that time. How am I going to drop three seconds in this 400 over the next two years? And we say, okay, well, we're going to have these competitions where we're going to try to do it at the end of each season. And within each season, there are going to be meets that lead up to that. And at each one of those meets, we're going to try parts of this race to try to put it together. Maybe one's going to focus on breaststroke and one's going to focus on backstroke and one's going to focus on another part of your race. And one's going to, you're going to sum a lot of events and one you're only going to sum a few events that will kind of prepare you for that intermediary step. And then we're going to work even closer to where we are today. And we're going to say, okay, in the next three months, we've got these meets coming up. And these are the things we'd like to change about your nutrition. And these are the things that we want to do about sleep and maybe help you do that better. And we're going to work closer and closer and closer till you get to the most important thing that's going to happen. I call it the immediate goal. And that's what are you going to do right now, right? What are you going to do right now? Everybody has decisions to make all day long. And what we want our kids to do is walk in the door every day into that pool with the mindset and the intention that they're going to get a tiny percent better at something. And it doesn't have to be, you know, maybe it's something that's easy to do. Maybe it's something that's difficult to do, but every day you leave that pool knowing you got a little bit closer to your goal. And then you start building momentum towards these intermediary goals. And that ultimately builds the momentum to your big goal down the road. So that's how we would set it up. So, okay, you start off from your big, big goal, work backwards, and you're going to get more granular as you get closer exactly. to the present. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that since I wrote this book, it was 2016, right? You know, I'm, I'm really big into like Eckhart Tolle and the power of now is like really changed my life. It's one of the most important things that I've read. I've read it 10 times probably. 
But, you know, being in the present moment is the most important thing I think that any of us can do. And that speaks to the what are you doing right now? I, I think once you have your game plan in place and you have your goals down the road, you have to then change your almost your entire focus to what do I do today to take today's step? And then you don't, you know, every now and then you look up and look down the road and say, okay, yeah, it seems like we're on track. seems like we're moving towards it. But your key focus is on what you're doing right now and what you're going to do today and what you're going to do tomorrow. And one thing you do too, to keep this concrete for your athletes is you actually, you print out a piece of paper for them mm-hmm. with these intermediate, like here's your game plan for four yeah, years. Exactly. And, here's your deal. Yeah. I think that's really useful. Don't just keep it ethereal. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's the kind of thing where I look at, like I have a, I only do mine for a year because I have so many decisions to make that I can like only process one year at a time, but I have like the whole year's general plan on a paper and I have it and I just kind of look at it every day. And, and, and I don't like in depth, I just I'm like, okay, today we're here. All right. We still have this much time. And it just by doing that, it just sort of stimulates some thought about something. Oh yeah, I should probably start adding this in because I want to be ready for something in two months. You know, you're just, it just kind of helps you stay on track. Well, another thing you did for yourself to keep you, like when you were doing the Olympic coaching, you had like a, I think an app on your phone where you put in like a countdown to the days until the Olympics. You said, I got a thousand days yeah. to the Olympics. What am I going to do to help these athletes get one step closer to their vision? And that creates a, a sense of urgency on a day-to-day basis. Definitely. And you know, at our, we don't have one yet at ASU. I'm working on it. We're outside in the sun where everything gets killed. Uh, <laughs> but at Michigan, I had a big countdown where it counted every day for the whole quad down to the Olympics. And when it started, it was all these days. And people were like, why did you put that up there? I was like, this thing will be gone before you know it. And sure enough, like a week before the Olympic trials, they're like, man, you're right. It's time flew. <laughs> so yeah. it just kind of keeps you, lets you know that uh, time is fleeting, right? And this game plan is not set in stone. You adjust it as needed. So maybe if an athlete, yeah, if an athlete gets injured, maybe you have to adjust things a bit, but you maintain the game plan. Exactly. It just kind of gives you a direction and, you know, it lets you know if you're really far off track because you're going to be off track a little bit and you just kind of gear it back towards where you want to be. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right. So rule five is live the vision every day. And this is all about establishing routines. Yeah. So how do routines help us live out our vision? Routines are, I think, important for a number of reasons. Number one, like I'll speak to myself. I like to do daily routines because they reduce the number of decisions I have to make. You know, it kind of automates some things in my life. And that allows me to use my real energy on the decisions that are important. I'll give you an example. You know, every day I get up at the same time. My alarm is set at 410, but I get up at 4, usually 356. It's kind of weird. I don't know. I'm always up at 356. I lay there for a second, get up. I make my bed right away in the dark, open the windows so that when I come back, the sun's coming in my room. And I'll immediately go and I'll make a cup of coffee. And I will read the day's installment of the Daily Stoic, which is very important to me. I think I'm on my like third or fourth time through it. But it's a passage every day of Stoic philosophy that just allows you to kind of think about, you know, how you live your life and how you want to be. And, and, and that's my little moment where I drink the cup of coffee, read the Daily Stoic, and just have a kind of a sets my intentions and my sort of tone for the day. And then I either go to the pool and coach practice or I go and swim myself at another pool near my house. And then that's done because exercise is super important, right? I eat the same things most days. And so by the time I get to like nine o'clock, I've already done a whole lot of things that have set me up to have a great day and be the best person I can be. I've exercised. I've had some kind of healthy food. I've fed my brain a little bit with something that's good. And then I can tackle the problems of the day that come up and kind of be my best self doing it. So I really like that for myself. And I think anybody who gets into that, it's, it's a good thing. Walk us through the routine for an elite level swimmer because it, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's intense. It's very intense. So what they would do, 
they're going to get up relatively early. Like practice starts at six, right? In the morning, they're probably up five, five fifteen. They're going to have some sort of nutrition. They're going to go to the pool and we're going to have our training session. That's probably, you know, an hour and a half to two hours, depending on the time of the year. They are going to then probably eat a real meal, pretty big breakfast. Some days after that time, they're going to be doing uh, strength training. So they'll go in the gym for an hour and do strength training, which is pretty demanding. And then they'll go home, have another meal. They will probably nap. And then they're going to come back for the main practice of the day, which is at 2 o'clock. And that one is going to be a real challenge. So by the time they're done with that, they're probably going to right after do some sort of recovery routines that they have, you know, there's some stretching or some, some like ice tubs and stuff like that, cold tubs that they like to do right after the swimming. And then they're going to go home and they're going to eat again. They eat a lot. It's a big part of their deal. And somewhere interspersed in the day are going to be other things that they might need to do. Like swimmers do dry needling. They do things to keep their shoulders intact. They might do some kind of physical therapy because the demands are pretty great physically. Some might meet with a psychologist. A lot of our people do. I think it's important. And then they're in bed. So it's a full day of activity and it's very demanding. And then you point out too, for spectators, when you watch swimming, it looks intense and exciting and it is, it really is. But then you point out that for a swimmer, it is one of the most monotonous sports you could do because all you're doing is you're swimming, you're looking at a black line beneath you, counting your strokes, and you're doing that every day for years. So how do you help your athletes not get burnt out? That's a great, great point. Um, you know, I always tell people it's like watching grass grow, watching some of these practices, right? Because they're just going up and down <laughs> a lot. But what I t- tend to do is, number one, everything that we do in training has a purpose. It has a physiological or a technical purpose. And I try to make that very clear to them before we start so they know why we're doing it. I think people get burnt out when they're doing this stuff. and like, what's the point of this, right? So at least they know what my thought about what the purpose of it is. So I think that's important. And number two, I try to focus them on specific things that are unique to them that they should be working on while they are doing it. Like, you know, let's get your right elbow up a little bit higher or, or, you know, focus on this turn in a certain way. And that gives it a little more meaning as well. So I think that keeps them engaged. And it also ties it to what we're trying to do in the races, which ultimately helps them achieve their goals. Okay. Okay. So put purpose behind the routine. That's important. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. Um, do you think someone's susceptibility to burnout and how readily they're able to bounce back from it, does it have anything to do with whether or not they've chosen the right goal to pursue or the right area 100%. to work in? Yeah. If you have somebody who is, you know, quote unquote, burned out, a lot of times they either don't have goals that are reasonable and exciting, they just don't feel like it's worth doing, or they've lost track of what their goals really are. You know, somewhere along the line, they've gotten distracted, gotten off track, you know, and it's easier to get off track than you think. And I think a big part of a coach's role is to help keep people in contact with their goals because, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all, right? You get tired and it's like, I just don't want to do this. And like, well, remember, our goal is to win a medal in Paris. And to do that, we're going to have to fix this part of your race, and this is how we're going to do it. I'm like, okay, I'll give my give my best. Okay, and 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 you could kind of go back to the thing of, I also think that what we preach a lot is progress over perfection. I think people who get burned out expect a hundred percent perfection, and you just can almost never get it, right? But what you can get is progress, and you know some days. You know, we talk a lot about money in the bank. They're like, well, that wasn't very good. I was like, yeah, well, that's a few pennies in the bank. We'll have it later. Some days you're putting a hundred bucks in the bank. <laughs> Some days a thousand. <laughs> but, you know, try to every day put a little bit in there and you'll get the compound interest down the road. So I think a lot of it is how you frame it and then how they sort of perceive, you know, what their efforts actually doing for them. 
Yeah, this conversation we've been having about making sure you have the right goal or remembering your goal, it reminds me of some research done by this guy, Daniel F. Chambliss. Mm-hmm. He did a study on the nature of excellence and he examined yeah. competitive swimmers. Great book. And he wanted to figure, yeah, he wanted to figure out why why there's so, so much stratification at the competitive level, like why some swimmers became Olympians and others didn't. And he found this, his conclusion. He said, at the higher levels of competitive swimming, something like an inversion of attitude takes place. The very features of the sport, which the sea level swimmers finds unpleasant, the top level swimmer enjoys. What others see as boring, swimming back and forth over a black line for two hours, say, they find peaceful, even meditative often challenging or therapeutic. They enjoyed hard practices, look forward to difficult competitions, try to set difficult goals. Coming into the 5.30 a.m. practice at Mission Viejo, many of the swimmers were lively, laughing, talking, enjoying themselves, perhaps appreciating the fact that most people would positively hate doing it. It is incorrect to believe that the top athletes suffer great sacrifices to achieve their goals. Often, they don't see what they do as sacrificial at all. They like it. Does that finding line up with your own observations as a coach? A hundred percent. I think Dan Chambliss calls that the mundanity of excellence, right? I think that's like a chapter at the end of his book about that. And it's so true. They find meaning in these things. And, you know, you kind of go back to another quote that we use with the kids. It's like, you know, successful people are willing to make a habit of doing things that unsuccessful people aren't willing to do. And that's what these people do. The high performers make a habit of being uncomfortable. They make a habit of getting up early. They make a habit of giving their best effort every day. And the the lesser performers will not do that. Maybe occasionally they do it, but usually they don't. So I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. And they don't make it a habit because maybe they don't enjoy it. Like the swimming isn't a good fit for them. We've had David Epstein on the podcast talking about his book, Range. He had that great line. He said, what looks like grit is often fit, right? Yeah. The people who just seem like they're just like robots about whatever pursuit they do, it's not that they're overly, they have discipline, but it's not like they're not relying only on that. They just found the thing that fits what they're, what they're meant to do. Like, I, mean, exactly. I think Michael Phelps, yeah. like Michael, you talk about Michael Phelps, he loved practice mm-hmm. and he would even practice on Christmas because he yeah. loved it so much. And there's some athletes who they might've with some grit and some discipline, they could have done all right, but they're never going to get to that Michael Phelps level because it's maybe swimming at a, the elite level is not the good fit for them. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I've noticed that in my own experience. So I do powerlifting mm-hmm. and it's a boring sport because all you do is just lift weight up and down every day. It's, and there's no variation, but I've been doing it for years and I haven't, I've worked out on holidays. I work out on vacation and it's not because like I'm just super disciplined and gritty and I'm just whatever. I just, I really enjoy powerlifting. I enjoy doing, I, I couldn't imagine missing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So another rule is stay motivated for the long haul. So this is sort of a continuation of talking about warding off burnout. I mean, so your athletes, they're pursuing goals that are perhaps years, could be four years out. For some athletes, it could be eight years out. How do you keep them motivated throughout that long duration? You know, you just find the intermediate thing so that almost every day there's something that in practice that you can reward them for doing well. So they're tiny little goals, micro goals uh, within every session. And you're like, okay, today when we're doing these hundreds free, I want you to try to hold 55 on every one and see if you can really use a 6B kick through the whole set. And if they do that, which may or may not be difficult for them, you say, awesome, we're right where we want to be. Moving on to the next stage, they feel good about it. They want to come back the next day. They feel like they got something out of practice. So I think being engaged in practice and finding ways to you know, see progress in the very short term is the way that you keep it going for the long term. It's just you just add those up. You just keep adding those little wins up. And before long, you've made some big progress. Well, another thing you encourage your athletes to do, and you've done this in your own life, is developing a passion outside of your key passion. Yeah. What does that look like and why is that important? Well, I think, you know, number one, I don't, if you want to be excellent at something like what we do, you're not going to be perfectly balanced, right? (laughs) You can't be. But in your life, you could be balanced, right? There, you know, when you're done swimming, you're going to do a lot of other things. Or maybe when there's a time where the training's not as much, you can do some other things. And 
honestly, when you are in the hard training, you can still take your mind away to do something else that kind of gives you a break from the never ending kind of what's at the pool. So I encourage everyone to have things that they're interested in, that they love to do that are different from the swimming. And it just, it's, it's a complete break from that environment. And I think that helps you stay going for a long time too. You know, I have a lot of things I like to do. I have a garden now. I'm kind of got into that a little bit. I love to cook. I cook for the family every Sunday, a big meal. So there are things that sort of take my mind away from the swimming. And then when I go back to it, I feel a lot fresher. And I think I encourage all of them to have something like that as well. Well, you were actually involved with horse racing. Uh, you own some racehorses. Are you still doing that? You know, I kind of got out of it. It got too yeah. expensive for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I was. Yeah, I did yeah. that. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was one of your passions outside of your passion. For, for sure. For a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And you even talked about when you were out with the horses, you know, by taking your mind off of swimming, you would actually find yourself thinking about it, but sort of indirectly. And exactly. It, You'll it just kind of you, yeah. get, yeah, you just kind of get a... I think when you're in a different environment, instead of sitting in my office at the pool, right, or standing on the pool deck, you're thinking about something else primarily, but in your brain, things are kind of, you're mulling over things, right? And since for me, most of my life is swimming, it's kind of in there, and they'll just kind of surface. And I'm like, wow, I got to make sure that I do that drill next week because that that would really help someone get better on their backstroke. So it, it, I think that's a, a very important thing is that when you quiet your brain and a lot of times when you're doing these things, like I'm out working in my garden or I'm cooking, I find it super relaxing. And then I'll just kind of get new ideas about what is happening in the swimming. So yeah, that's very true. And that's another thing that helped you avoid the burnout. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So rule eight is adversity will make you stronger. And uh, Phelps had some very public adversity during yeah. his career. How did those experiences, though, turn him into a better athlete and eventually a better person? Well, I think they made him appreciate the swimming a little more. You know, the opportunity to do it. And it just, I think it's all in how you approach it, too. It very easily could have broken him. And we just decided that when these very tough situations came up, instead of just throwing our hands up and saying, well, that's it. We just took a step back, took a breath and didn't do anything for a minute, right? Let's just think, don't do anything. And then as I always do, come up with a plan and then just start taking one step. Let's just take one step forward. Okay, let's do another one. That seemed to go okay. Let's take another one. One of the things that, you know, really was a big hurdle for Michael was, you know, in 2007 at the World Championships, he had had his best meet ever. It probably still is his best meet in many ways in the World Championships. And he had won seven gold medals and he would have won eight, but the relay got DQ'd in the morning. He didn't get to swim on it. And we came out of that and I was certain that he was 100% on track for Beijing to win eight gold medals. And he was training beautifully in that fall. And then he actually slipped on the ice in Michigan and broke his wrist in uh, November, I believe. No, October, October 7th. I remember the date as a matter of fact. And that was like a huge thing. Like I remember going over to his apartment when I heard about it and he was sitting there basically crying, saying, I just gave up three gold medals. It's all over now. And I was kind of thinking that myself. I was like, wow, we're kind of screwed. Right. But then I said, okay, Here's what we're going to do. Number one, let's just take a breath. And I'm going to talk to these doctors and we're going to figure out what the options are. And the options were two options. Number one, be in a cast for six weeks. Number two, have it repaired surgically with a plate and he'd be back in the water as soon as the stitch is healed, which is about 10 days. So the next day he had surgery, not, to say the least, right? We're going to go do that. And what seemingly was like this impossible obstacle or something that was going to completely crush what we we're doing ended up not being that bad. You know, two weeks later, he was back swimming. A month later, he was back swimming well. And then we just sort of continued on our way. But it would have been very easy to just say, well, it's all over now. We can't do it. We just decided to sort of stick with it and just take it a step, a step, a step and work your way through it. And I think that's an important part of this. 
Yeah. And I think too, uh, maybe you do this with your athletes is it would say they do get injured. I think the focus and says that we're all is lost. You got to think about what, what can we do? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you did that with Michael. Okay. We can get the surgery. If surgery is not an option, you probably imagine you probably think, well, how can we adjust your training? Exactly. Maybe you could just kick or do whatever, you know, there are things you can do a hundred percent. There are things you can do. Yeah. I think that's a good, never ask about what you can't do. Think about what can you do? That's a a good mindset. And what do you tell an athlete who, you know, they follow the game plan and then they go to the moment, the event, and they f- fall short? Like, what do you tell an athlete who's trained for years for the Olympics and they don't even medal? Like, that's a big, uh, that's a big setback. Yeah. Well, if they made the Olympics, you're part of like 0.01% of people. So you got that to fall back on. That's a good, when they don't make the Olympics is the hard one. What I need them to know ahead of time is that the only thing that really matters in this whole process is that you gave your full effort when it was required. Because at the end of the day, that's all any of us can do. You know, John Wooden, there's a great quote from him. All I'm asking you to do and all we can ever ask of anybody is to do the best you can, right? Some of us are going to do the best we can and not win a medal. But if you know you gave your best and you know you prepared the best way you could, that's the real value of this whole thing anyway. And because you didn't get a certain outcome, you still have all of the amazing things that you put into that process. So I think it's important ahead of time that they know that they gave their best effort and that we're training so that they can give their best effort when it's needed. Now, if they don't give their best effort when it's needed, they'll just have to live with that, right? But in general, I think you can coach them so that whatever happens at the end, they're going to be able to live with it. So the next rule, this is kind of related to what we were just talking about. Rule nine is when the time comes, perform with confidence. So I'm curious, as a coach, when you look at an athlete, what causes them to not compete with confidence? Maybe they're doing great all through practice. Maybe the smaller meets they're doing great. But when they get to the big event, what causes athletes to choke? It's generally a focus on the outcome versus the process. Hmm. You know, it's like kind of Nick Saban, like don't look at the scoreboard, play the next play. We control our process. We control how we train. We control the standards we hold ourselves to in the pool, out of the pool. We control our strategy. We control the way we compete in terms of the energy we put into the races. What we don't control is other people who have a big part in the outcome, right? So what we have to do is focus on what we control and not worry about what other people are going to do or what's going to happen if we don't get a certain time or win a certain medal. And I think people who choke, that's what what has happened. And if you looked at physiological activation, it would be a bell curve. And over on the left-hand side, you'd have low physiological activation and you'd have pretty low performance. And then as physiological activation rises, there's a point at the peak where you're getting your maximum performance level and you're at an appropriate physiological activation state. As you continue to activate, you get more into fight or flight and performance decreases on the other side of the bell curve. And the people who choke are over on this right-hand side. So there are some things that I can do to help refocus them on their process goals. And we constantly try to keep them focused on how they're going to swim the race, tune out the noise, focus on some specific thing to get the race started, maybe have some key words that they tell themselves at different parts of the race and focus their energies on the things that they control, namely that, not what somebody two lanes over is doing or not what's going to happen if they don't get this gold medal. So I think that's how you combat it. And it has to happen well in advance. And still, sometimes it doesn't work. You talk about this experience with uh, Michael where you started focusing on the process. So I yeah. think it was the London Olympics. Came back, it was the medley. Yeah. And uh, they placed fourth. And that was like the first time he'd never medaled in eight years, basically. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. And, you know, he was just like, that sucked. It's awful. And like, I, I, I didn't train enough, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And you were like, yeah, you didn't train the way you're supposed to. But what we're going to do now is we're going to focus on, we can improve your breaststroke for the next event. Exactly. You got, you yeah. got detailed. You focused on the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it worked out. He won the 200 IM, swam really well. He actually finished that up pretty well. And I think anytime you can take their attention to something like that, 
it's going to be good for them because everybody's going to be excited at, in the competition, right? There's already the level of excitement. There's very few people I've ever coached that I had to raise their activation state during a meet. You're usually trying to lower it or you're trying to get them to stay relaxed so that they can get up on the block and do what they're trained to do. So, yeah, I think keeping it specific is very important. All right. Uh, rule 10 is celebrate your achievement, then decide what's next. And I, I think people may have heard that Olympic champions often experience post-victory depression yeah. where they just feel blah after they, they notch an achievement, which you think is counterintuitive. Like you did the, the greatest thing that an athlete can do and you're depressed. What's going on? Have you seen that with your athletes? Yeah, I've seen it with Michael, right? Every time. Every time he's had an issue, it's kind of after the Olympics. And it's... You know, there are a number of reasons that go into that, but I think the main thing is the nature of Olympic preparation or preparing for, you know, any kind of sports main event is that we don't look beyond. You look at where you are right now, right? So your whole focus is on the training today. It's on what you're eating. It's on how you're sleeping. It's on how you're going to fix your hurt shoulder. It's on everything that we're doing. To, and there's a lot of stuff, and it fills up your whole life. And we don't want to be thinking about what we're doing after the Olympics because we want our focus to be on the process that we're on, right? So what happens is they go through this process. They go to the Olympics. There's an amazing result. And then the day after, there's no more training. There's no more, what am I doing today? You have all this time and you haven't figured out how to spend it. And you you kind of miss that knowing what you're going to do every day. And I think that leads a lot to it, right? And the thing, maybe you just had, you achieved your life goal and you're like, well, what's next? I don't have any idea. I think that was Michael's thing. And to my detriment, Along the line, I didn't help him think what might happen after eight gold medals in Beijing because we didn't, I couldn't see past it. It's the only thing I thought about was how I could get him ready for that. I couldn't even see past the day after. So once he achieved it, both of us were like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> and that's a big void. So yeah, you see it all the time. And I think that what we have to do is well in advance of these events start helping them figure out what their game plan is going to be beyond those so that there's like a natural transition after and there's something they can work towards. And personally, how has your vision changed over the years? Um, you're still an Olympic coach and I imagine each new swimmer you coach, you know, it feels like a new experience, a new goal, but how else have you found new goals to work on and, you know, fresh motivation after your huge success with Phelps? Um, what I've done is I knew that when Michael was finished, and that was in 2016. I was too young to really retire. You know, I was like 51. And I wanted to do something different. And I hadn't really done a lot of NCAA coaching. So I took over the program at ASU and started building it up. And ASU, the program was really kind of in disarray, but I felt like it had good resources. And so since 2016, I've been building this thing up. So last week we got second in the NC2A championship. So we're almost there. We're almost about to win. So for me, that's a new and exciting challenge. And we're still, uh, you know, working on the Olympics. we got a lot of great people now. We have a lot of Olympic firepower for the next one. So I just kind of try to use all the knowledge that I had in the first phase, in the second phase, to uh, help these guys succeed. What do you do with someone like Michael Phelps, right? They hit a really big achievement. What do you do after that? Like, what's the next thing you work on? It's like someone who walks on the moon. Like, I walked on the moon. What do you do after you walk on the moon? Like, what do you do after you you hit the record for the most gold medals won? <laughs> well, we tried to, it was hard. And in reality, Michael didn't do a best time in any of his events after Beijing. And he swam two more Olympics, right? So it was kind of hard to keep going. But what kept us going were, number one, we kind of wanted to, keep adding to the gold medal total, right? And the medal total. So Michael has 23 gold medals. Second place is nine, <laughs> right? Right. So I think he's safe for a long time. I think we'll be gone before somebody else, you know, probably gets to that level. So you try to find another goal that just sort of keeps him motivated because it was his job, right? For Michael, unlike other swimmers, who's making a significant amount of money. So we wanted to keep it going. He couldn't just quit after Beijing. It was, you know, 
there was he was too young like me and we wanted to kind of keep it going for a while so we just found other ways to uh motivate him and honestly the best one was i think we did a terrible job of dealing with the time between beijing and london because we just came back and i just tried to put him back in the same program we did before beijing and both of us knew there's no way in hell he's going to win eight gold medals again it just doesn't happen right so we fought about how he was going to do it he didn't come to practice a lot he wasn't that prepared i just doubled down on your throwing away your life by not coming to practice it was the worst thing i could do right but after London, when he took a year off, because he thought he was going to retire, and I took a year off, he kind of decided he wanted to come back. And I said, okay, if we do it this time, we're going to do it the right way. And I want you to end up your career loving swimming. And he did. That was by far our best thing, was in Rio, he absolutely loved swimming again like he did when he was 12. Regardless of whether he broke a record and he did win the gold medals that we wanted, right? But it was just a fantastic way for him to kind of come tie it up. But we just sort of shifted our focus to that. Like our main focus is that you enjoy this process and that you put your best effort into it because you love it. And then you just love the racing at the end and then leave the sport kind of in love with it and move on to your next phase. And I think that was quite successful. What's his next phase? What's he doing now? He does a lot of work with his foundation, Michael Phelps Foundation, which teaches healthy lifestyles and water safety to kids. He's still doing a lot of appearances and endorsements and things like that. So he stays busy quite, you know, he's always busy. Yeah, it seems like this is great advice. This is something someone has to think about when they're hitting midlife or maybe retirement, right? You achieved the thing you wanted to achieve. You got to figure out what's next. It might not be, you're not going to win gold medals. Exactly. You're not going to have that. Yeah. It, but it could, you can find satisfaction in maybe mentoring or doing things behind the scenes or coaching or things like 100%. that. A hundred percent. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, Bob, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? My social media is at coach underscore Bowman on Instagram and Twitter. You can email me if you need to at bob.bowman at asu.edu. That would be a good way to do it. And the book's on Amazon, Audible, all of those things. Fantastic. Well, Bob Bowman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. Really appreciate it. My guest there is Bob Bowman. He's the author of the book, The Golden Rules. It's available at amazon.com. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash golden rules. We find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.